I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 10 through 13. Originally, my plan was to cover verses 10 through 18, but about Thursday I threw up the white flag and I realized there's no way we would get through it all. Uh, And so this will allow me to slow down a little bit more and and to really focus on, I think, some very important texts for us to consider. And so we'll we'll finish this up next week. But we're going to look at Hebrews 2 verses 10 through 13. Uh, 13 uh, this morning. If you were with us last Sunday evening, we started into uh, a new section of the book of Hebrews. There are five main sections. Each one is set up with a section of doctrine and a section of warning. We started into section number two, where um, the author of Hebrews is going to make a very important point about Jesus. In the first section, we learn Jesus is superior or he is greater as an agent of revelation than the prophets and angelic beings. You remember that? Chapter 1 into chapter 2. Jesus is greater than the prophets and angels in conveying God's revelation to us. And one of the reasons that was significant for the original readers was they thought angels brought God's revelation of the law of Moses to them. So when the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is a better agent of revelation from Jesus, he's saying, what Jesus is going to give to you is even more significant than the law of Moses, which many of you are trusting in. Today, we start into this section, or even last week we started into it, where he is going to say he is not only greater than angels, the supernatural mediators of the law, he's greater than Moses himself than Moses himself. He's going to state that point very clearly in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the meanwhile, what he does in chapter 2, starting verse 5, through the end of chapter 2, is he's going to talk about all the different blessings that come to his followers. That's the followers of Jesus Christ. Because he was made flesh, his followers received multitude of blessings. So, That's what we're looking at during this Christmas season, these many blessings that are ours because of the person we follow, Jesus Christ, uh, in the New Covenant. Last Sunday night, we looked at verses 5 through 9, and the first blessing, and uh, uh, there uh, we saw that in his incarnation, Jesus was able, this is how I stated it last week, he was able to accomplish God's original design for mankind. He's able to accomplish God's original design for mankind. You may remember that God originally created man, that's men and women, as rulers over creation. Unfortunately, however, we mess things up badly in Adam and Eve in the garden. And so that now the universe doesn't really respond normally well to our leadership. I mean, even domesticated animals sometimes refuse to submit to men and women as rulers of this universe. You don't believe that? Come see me and my dog at our house. They refuse to submit to men and women as rulers because the entrance of sin. But then in verse 9, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus came. And he suffered death, but then God crowned him. You see that in your text, Hebrews 2, 9? God crowned him with glory and honor. We were to reign over creation, but now Jesus, the perfect man, 
and Son of God rules over the created order. He accomplished what God had originally designed for humanity. And one day, we too will rule in the world to come because of the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. That's the first blessing. There are more blessings, however, and today I want to look at two more of those, verses 10 through 13. The second blessing of Jesus' incarnational ministry is that he glorified God through his great personal suffering. And I want to take a little while to look at verse 10. So look in your Bible with me in verse 10. The text says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This text is talking about the fact that it is, was fitting or appropriate that God the Father would make Jesus perfect through suffering. Now, as you consider this first verse, I just think this is an amazing statement here at the beginning. It is fitting. And I, I want to think about this with you for just a little bit. It's fitting or appropriate for God to make Jesus perfect. What is your initial reaction to that verse? It's fitting for the Father to make the Son perfect through suffering. Two parts of this statement might shock or confuse you because they did me. First, it's startling to me that the author says that Jesus would be made perfect, complete, or be made mature. So I want to think about that for a while. How can Christ mature? How can he be made perfect? Is he not perfect or mature? Is he incomplete in some way? That's why it's shocking or confusing. This might refer to the need of the incarnation to bring things to an end or the goal of God and to complete salvation history. George Guthrie says that this word, uh, mature or complete, has something to do with completing a course in the book of Hebrews. But the text does not say that, that God's plan for salvation matured, but that Christ himself matured in some way or another. So I think it's better to see this in light of the Old Testament Scripture, in light of the way the word mature was used in the Old Testament. So I'm going to invite you to turn back in your Bibles. Go back to Exodus 29 for a moment. Exodus chapter 29. And and really what I'm doing is I'm taking you to an Old Testament text where this word mature is used three times in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Scripture. And I'm going to suggest that this might be what the author of Hebrews means when he says Jesus Christ was made complete or mature through suffering. Okay, so we're going to look at Exodus 29. I guess I, I, <laughs> I guess I should turn there too, right? Got a few things in my mind this morning. Exodus 29, I'm there. Are you there? Exodus 29, Genesis, Exodus 29, 29. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him, They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. That word ordained there is the word mature. They shall be made mature in them. 
The son who succeeds him as a priest who comes into the tent of meeting to minister at the holy place shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of maturity or completion. Here translated ordination, which is good. And boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination. This is noun form, same word. Their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination, same word, or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Then you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them. Okay, so I see this word and other words related to it in root form being used in this context. The word for perfect in, the, in Hebrews is used multiple times in this text to describe the way the Levitical priests were ordained or consecrated for their office. You see, in priestly context, this word is often used of the ordination an installment of a priest which was normally accompanied with a sacrifice. you got Aaron and his sons here, and they're going to be ordained, made complete to function as priests with the accompaniment of a sacrifice. The author of Hebrews then, I think, draws on the way the Septuagint uses the word of the priesthood. So the word mature means that God ordained Jesus Christ, his son, for the priestly office through his own sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews will will talk about that over and over, his once-for-time personal sacrifice of himself. Okay, so you go back to the book of Hebrews. That's why I I think it's a priestly setting when it says that Jesus Christ was made perfect, was made complete. I think it's he was ordained to function as a priest in the new covenant. And it was upon the basis of his own sacrifice. He was made complete through sacrifice. Whatever the statement means, right? It's hard. It's fitting. Whatever it means, it cannot mean that Jesus Christ was in any way imperfect. Okay, so I don't like that English translation, perfect very much, because I think sometimes it just misleads us. It doesn't mean that he was imperfect, because the book of Hebrews, more than any other book possibly in the entire holy canon of Scripture, demands the offering of a perfect, pure, and sinless sacrifice to save people from their sin. His perfection does not suggest uh, any existing imperfection in Christ. That's what Jesus becoming perfect means. He was ordained to function as a priest in the covenant. But that's just a part of the shocking nature of this, and I want to think about it again from from a different perspective. The the second thing that startles me is when uh, the author of Hebrews says it was fitting or it was appropriate that God would make Jesus suffer. And so I ask you this morning, how is it fitting that God would make Jesus suffer and die? I think it's easy to question the character of a God who would send his son to die on a cross. 
It seems sometimes too unloving and cruel for God to do that. Matter of fact, not too long ago, I got into a conversation with a woman in a plane who raised this very objection against God. She said that she couldn't bring herself to believe in God or want to submit to Him. And then asked me this question. She said, why would a loving God send His Son to a cross? Ever been in those witnessing opportunities before and you're like, ooh, that's a really good question. The answer God gave me at that time was I suggested that, you know, it, it actually doesn't make sense unless he had a very strong motivation or reason to do so. Perhaps God did so because he wanted to save many people. Matter of fact, in verse 10 itself, I think the author of Hebrews brings that out in the phrase, in bringing many sons to glory. I think that's one legitimate way to answer the question. How would it be fitting for God to make his son Jesus suffer? What's so that many sons could be brought to glory? But in my opinion, the text gives one more immediate answer, and it's found in the way the author of Hebrews describes God. Okay, so you may have just read over this thinking there wasn't much relevance like I have for years. And then I started really thinking about this verse in close detail. And so I want you to look at verse 10 again at the beginning. It says, for it was fitting for he. Okay, and then here's the description of God. For whom and by whom all things exist to make Jesus suffer. I think the key to how this is fitting of God is found in how he's described uh, in this, this little phrase, these two phrases. First, the beginning of the phrase means that God is the end or the goal of all things. That's what it, he means when he says, for whom all things exist. He's the goal or the end of everything. You should know that, right? We exist as human beings, even more particularly as believers in Jesus Christ, for God's glory. That's why we're here. But the second phrase, I think, is the key. It helped me this week. The second phrase. Uh, the second half of the phrase suggests that God is the means of all things. That's what by whom all things exist means. Seems to me that this is key. It was fitting for God to make Jesus suffer because this way or in this way and, and this way alone, our spiritual existence would not only be for him, but made possible through him or by him. You see, God is not just the goal. He is. But he is the means by which we get to the goal. You see that? That's, I think, what the author of Hebrews said. God is not just the goal. His glory. He is the means by which we get him. All things exist through him. We not only look forward to glory, which I think is God himself, we can only get to glory because of him. You get that? It's a profound point. I mean, how fitting, right? 
how appropriate that he would not only be the goal of all things, but he would be the way we get there. That's the nature or the character of the God that I know and that you know and that you serve. In case you haven't thought about this concept before, I thought, you know, what's an illustration, a human illustration that could maybe help us picture this? And so uh, I came up with this. Imagine someone demanding that you cross the Atlantic Ocean. Cross the Atlantic Ocean. You need to get from here to say, uh, let's, let's go with London, England. And all you got is yourself. I mean, you got like two feet, two hands. So your only choice is to swim. Is that going to work? No way. Here to the Atlantic Ocean, you just got yourself nothing. Can't get there. It's impossible. But then this man sends you his ship for you to get there. Men and women, that's the nature of our loving God. He is not only the goal. He gets us there through his son who willingly sacrifices to make it happen. Perhaps you're here today at this Christmas season and you've never believed in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the only way you will be accepted by God. Simon Peter, one of the apostles, said this. He said, there is salvation found in no other name. For there's no other way under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God loves you so much, so much. He longs for you to enjoy his glory forever and ever, forever and ever. And he knows you can't attain it yourself. We're all sinners, dead in trespasses and sins. So God sent his son Jesus as the means by which you can be saved. If you're here today and you've never believed in Jesus Christ and repented of your sin, I implore you. You can do that at any moment. You can do that now at your seat. You can do that after the service. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior of men. Repent of your sin. And you can experience the glory of God forever and ever. It's the only way. Well, that's a blessing. Blessing number two, verse 10, is that Jesus glorified God through great personal suffering and bringing many sons to glory. But I want to look at blessing number three, verses 11 through 13. The last blessing we'll look at today, I, I would summarize this way. Christ's incarnational ministry created a brotherhood of faith-filled believers. I know I'm using faith a bunch in believers, but I, I just couldn't think of a better way to say it. Christ's incarnational ministry created a brotherhood of faith-filled believers, verses 11 through 13. In these verses, the author of Hebrews will repeatedly demonstrate that believers have a close relationship with Jesus Christ because of his incarnation and sacrifice. Specifically, in my opinion, he gives three evidences of the closeness that we now enjoy because of Christ's incarnation and sacrifice. Okay, and we can go quickly through these. The first evidence is found in verse 11 where Christ calls believers, you ready for this? He calls us brothers and sisters. That's how you know we're close. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies, I take that to either be Jesus or God, likely Jesus. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's us, we're set apart by Jesus and his work, 
all have one source. So Jesus and us, we all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. The first part of verse 11 claims that Christ who sanctifies and we the ones sanctified by him are all, it could be translated literally, we are all of one. All of one. And that's a little bit mysterious though to know exactly what the author of Hebrews is intending here. In my opinion, the most likely meaning is that we all now exist as a result or come from one source, God the Father. Consequently, I think this is saying we are of God, the one through whom all things exist, or we all exist. Therefore, Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers, and I I think you could all say brothers and sisters, because we are all of the same Father. In other words, Christ experiences close solidarity with us, and he thinks of us as family because of his work in the incarnation. He thinks of us as family. He calls us brothers and sisters. That's evidence of the close fellowship we have with him. Now, he proves this in other ways too. In verse 12 uh, and 13, he'll do it by by referring back to the Old Testament. And I, I want us to consider this as well. So, I said there are three evidences of our closeness to G- with Jesus, the author of Hebrews gives. Uh, first, he calls us brothers and sisters. That means we're close. Second, Christ sings praises to God with us, his brothers and sisters. Look with me at verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Here in this text, we find that uh, the author of Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament, in particular, a psalm in the Old Testament, uh, Psalm number 22. So I'm going to ask you to turn back there for a moment, Psalm 22. So you see, everything after saying is in quotation marks. That means the author of Hebrews got it from uh, the Old Testament scripture. So we're going to go back to Psalm 22 for a moment. Now, throughout church history, many church fathers have declared that this psalm is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of David about a future Messiah. And as a matter of fact, um, a few years ago now, at the opening night of our missions conference, I preached on this text, and I suggested that David wrote this psalm prophetically in advance about the Messiah, Jesus, who would come and that it's all about Jesus. You can see this in the very first verse. The very first verse starts out this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, this is a statement that Jesus will make years later after this while hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later in the same psalm, David states that evildoers have pierced his hands and feet. That's where it becomes obvious that David's not talking about himself. We don't know of a time when someone came and pierced the hands and feet of David. He's talking prophetically about the Lord Jesus Christ who will come later. And later on, Jesus' hands and feet will be pierced. It also says that they would cast lots for his garment in verses 16 through 18 of this text. We don't know of a time when 
people came and they divided up, they, they you know, ripped David's garments off of him and cast lots for it. So David is speaking prophetically ahead of the Messiah that would come and save the people. He's speaking in advance of Jesus. And so having seen that this, this psalm, I think Psalm 22 is about Jesus, we consider its overall content. I broke it up in three ways with you two years ago. I don't expect you to remember any of this. I said the psalm goes from great lament, verses 1 through 21, to glorious praise. Glorious praise, verses 22 through 31. And it does so through a transition, which is right at the end of verse 21. So look at verse 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. That ends the section where David has uh, lamentation about the sacrifice of the coming Son of God all of this suffering and sacrifice, and then this request, save me from the mouth of a lion. I think this is Christ asking for deliverance from Satan. But then there's this transition in the psalm. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Well, the first part of the psalm is all about suffering and sacrifice. It goes from depths, from this point on, after deliverance, it's about Praise to God. And so what I suggested to you a while ago, if you remember two years ago, is that um, what the author of this psalm, David, is revealing to us is what would be on the mind and lips of Jesus Christ during his crucifixion and resurrection. So, in some of the first moments that Jesus experienced victory after his resurrection, among other things, let's see what Jesus, the sort of things Jesus would say. Look in your Bible at verse 22. So imagine Jesus being raised and then saying this. I will tell or sing of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You see, Jesus longed for the moment when he would be surrounded by his new brothers and sisters and sing praise to God, singing together in worship to the glory of God. So go uh, back to Hebrews and let's consider this citation again. So what is the point of Psalm 22, 22 in Hebrews Christ here, by quoting this psalm, is talking about the fact that he delights to sing praise to God in the presence of his brothers and sisters. This is how we know we're close to Jesus. He loves to sing with us in praise to the glory of his Father. That's closeness. In fact, when we gather together and we, and we sing together, it's fellowship, right? It's community together. And this verse is telling us that Jesus loves to sing with us, sing praise to God with us. We know we're close. There's one more evidence, and that's verse 13. We won't turn back to this next citation, but it comes from Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. It, it looks like two different passages, but it actually is coming from one. Look at verse 13. And again... I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. This quote comes from Isaiah 8. 
And again, uh, the first part in brackets or quotation marks is verse 17. The second part is verse 18. The first part says, I will put my trust in him. Who do you think that's talking about? Who's I and who's him? I, author of Hebrews, talking about Jesus, I will put my trust in him. Well, originally, if we were to go back to the book of Isaiah, this phrase was used by Isaiah himself, the prophet, who placed his trust in God despite the Assyrian crisis that was threatening Judah and Jerusalem and the threatening of the Israelite nation. Isaiah would wait for the Lord to fulfill his word. However, what the author of Hebrews does here is he he has this text referring to Jesus who will place his trust or who places his trust in God. And I think it's obvious, right? Jesus Christ evidenced full commitment and faith all throughout his earthly ministry. He continued to trust in his Father even despite persecution and pressure from the world and impending and immediate death. He continued to trust God. So I think Hebrews' statement, I will put my trust in him when referring to Jesus trusting in God, I think it's right on. It's true of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But the second part of this verse, I think, helps us see what the author's doing with it. The second part of this quote shows the familial relationship that Christ has with with God's children. Okay, so what's what's the second part? So you still with me here in the text? Uh, Hebrews 2, verse 13, the second quote, Isaiah 8, 18, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Originally, Isaiah describes how he and his two sons would be dependent on God. Remember, Isaiah said, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the the sons of the children God has given to me. Okay, so Isaiah is making like a declaration for his family, right? Me and my sons, we're going to be the ones who put confidence in God. Yet the author of Hebrews uses this passage to talk about our relationship to Jesus Christ. Christ calls believers, then, the children God has given to him. Guys, that? God gifted children. God has given me sons, Jesus says. Who are they? You're looking at them. Us. So just as Isaiah had two sons, so Jesus has sons. Let me again illustrate this. In our office, we, we, nor- we, we have two normal visits, visitors that come to us throughout the week. Two of the cutest little boys that you have ever seen in your life. Now, I'm not going to embarrass them or their parents by identifying them, but you can take a guess, and the parents know who they are. When these two little boys come into our office, the whole office experiences joy. To see these little guys come into the office, greet everyone with joy and zeal, you know, the joy and zeal of toddlers who think we're like some of the greatest people in the world. In their excitement, they often even call some of us by the wrong names. But what does it matter? They're so cute, right? It's just, they can get away with it. What a special gift I'm sure these two, these two boys are to their father and mother. 
Now imagine their father saying this. These are, these are the two boys God has given to me. And both they and I will put our trust in God. Men, men and women, that's what Jesus thinks about us. We are not only gift children of his, but we are ones like him who will put our trust in God in the midst of suffering. You see, Christ greatly glorified God in his suffering because he had confidence in God that glory was coming. I think the end of Hebrews makes this even more abundantly clear. Let me just show you a few passages where you see this about Jesus. Go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. We're just going to look at a few verses in Hebrews 12 and 13. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so, such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. He's our example of how we're to run in the midst of suffering. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, see his motivation, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. Then he sat down at God's right hand in the majesty and high. You see, what sustained Jesus through his suffering was his future inheritance of sitting down in the glory of God in heaven. Because Christ was sustained through suffering with the thought of his enthronement of God next to God, his sufferings greatly magnified God. This should also be true of us. We should be his children who have confidence like him in the midst of great suffering and affliction. Let me show you that in the end of Hebrews. Let's start just by going a little before this. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 34. It's the theme of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle. This is author of Hebrews to the original readers. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How could believers do that? Well, because they're following the example of Jesus. Keep reading. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, we are Jesus' children, and like him, we too should have great confidence, put confidence and trust in God that will enable us through any earthly suffering and persecution. Flip over to Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26 to see an example here of Moses. Hebrews 11, 24. By faith, Moses, when he, was when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. See, he gave up all this royalty to endure suffering. Look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ to be of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
What motivated Moses to say no to the pleasures of this world? All these things he could have was the greater reward that was laid before him. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. I think it becomes very clear here what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's doing the same thing. He says, keep your eye free, or life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Here the author of Hebrews requires us not to have fear, but to be risk-taking for the glory of God because he said he would be with us. He will be near us. So we say to men and women, it doesn't matter what you threaten to do. He'll be near. I think it makes it extremely clear in verses 12 through 14, I think is Kind of the main push in this book, look at verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's what Jesus did. He's suffering but glory to God because he put confidence in God. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city But we seek the city that is to come. This text, the author implores us to step outside the camp for the cause of Christ since he was willing to suffer and reminds us no matter what suffering, persecution we go through, no matter what riches someone offers us, it's nothing compared to the glories of heaven that we will experience with Christ forever and ever. So as we close, in becoming flesh and submitting himself to suffering, Jesus greatly glorified God through personal suffering and bringing many sons to glory. And he established a brotherhood. A group of men and women who will trust in God, regardless of what happens. For he is not only the goal, he is the means by which we reach the goal. What a great God that we have. We can trust him. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we close in prayer. I've got two things for you to consider this morning. Perhaps you aren't confident in God You don't have faith in him to help you in difficulties because you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. You've never repented of your sin and declared with your mouth that you believe in Jesus Christ to be the only Savior of men. If you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, Would you believe in Jesus today and repent of your sin? The Bible's clear. Salvation is found in no other way. There's no other way. You will experience the glory of God, the glory of heaven, unless you believe in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, for deliverance from your sins.
I ask you today, what would prevent you from doing that? I encourage you at this moment to pray to, pray to God. Confess your sin to Him. And declare to Him, I believe that you sent your Son, Jesus, to come to die on the cross in my place. And I believe that you brought Him from the dead so that I could be delivered from my sin. Do that now. Perhaps you're here today and you are suffering. Going through difficulty, loss, or you've been discouraged. But you have not been confident in God. You've wavered, you struggled. Won't you confess your fears to God and declare your trust in Him? If you know Christ as Savior, you are part of a brotherhood of men and women who put confidence in the Father. close in prayer. If you would need to talk with someone today, I would love the opportunity to chat with you after the service. Be available at the front of the auditorium here to talk with anyone who wants to discuss what God is doing in their heart. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what the author of Hebrews says here. Lord, at first it shocks us when we read that it would be fitting for the Father to make Jesus perfect through suffering. But then we realize this is just like you. It's your character. To not only be the goal of all things, but through yourself and your Son, to provide the means to get to the goal. Lord, might we rejoice in Jesus today. In Jesus' name, amen.